Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. doing something special today, and I'll tell you why in a minute. We are talking, however, about how to get your board on board, how to bring your board into some kind of a consensus or at least agreement about moving your capital campaign forward or really any project forward. And the reason we're doing that, I mean, because it is a good topic, it's an important topic, but the real reason we're doing that is that our friend and colleague, Simone Joyot, whom we have mentioned before on this, um, on this webinar, uh, passed away last week. And we are we have been thinking a lot about her. We have been rereading her book, which I've mentioned before, Firing Lousy Board Members and Helping the Others Succeed. Um, and she was 72 years old. She was a real force in this field. She wrote a great deal. She spoke a great deal. She went to conferences and she was a she was a force as a as a woman. She was a force. She would say things other people were afraid to say, and then she would be willing to really willing to talk about topics that were controversial. And some of you may know Tom Ahern. Simone was married to Tom for a great many years. And um, so we thought we would do a session that sort of channels a little of Simone, just in honor of her. She she was a force in both of our lives. And I'll tell you just a quick story about her and then we can dive in. So I first met Simone when my big capital campaign book, I had just wrote, I wrote my big capital campaign book. It was in its first edition and it was part of a seven book series for the Aspen Press. And they had, they had gotten seven authors each to write a book about a different topic, part of fundraising. Mine was about capital campaigns. Simone's was about, was more general, but had a big section on boards. And as it, as these things drew closer to being published and they were published them all as a, you know, together as a big set of seven books, Simone sent an email to all of the authors and to the, to all of the authors first saying, this publisher is not going to do enough for marketing and we all need to get on board to get these books marketed and here's a plan and here's the way we, we should do it. And she organized all of us in a group of seven to for about all of our titles. Now, what was funny about that for me is that at that time I was fairly young in my career. I mean, it was a bunch of years ago and I didn't, I wasn't as confident as I am now. And all I wanted to do was to hide my head and my book under a pillow and hope that no one under no one saw that I didn't know what I was really talking about. 
So when Simone stepped forward and said, we should market this series like mad because it's a great series, it was like a revelation to me. And I will always remember and appreciate, appreciate Simone for that. And she was a force in everything. She somehow never was plagued by the anxieties and fears that many of us are plagued with now and again, or she didn't seem to be anyway. I, I don't think that's true, Andrea. Um, uh, Simone talked frequently about imposter syndrome. And so I think that she, def- you know, but what she, I know. Yeah, no. She's good at hiding it. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, she was a force of nature, that's for sure. So if you have a memory about Simone, right. uh, do feel free to share it in the chat. We would love to honor her memory by introducing more people to her work and to to just remember her. And and today's session is dedicated to her because we're going to talk about getting your board on board. Uh, Boards were really important to Simone and a huge part of her work and her life. She served on many, many boards. Um, But Andrea's book that she was just referencing, I posted in the chat. So if you're looking for capital campaigns, strategies that work now in its fourth edition, you can find it on Amazon. And I just posted a a ridiculously long link that should bring you to Andrea's book. Um, But Andrea, why don't we talk about In Memory of Simone, how to get your board on board with the idea of a capital campaign. And then we will turn to your questions. So do go ahead and put them in the Q&A box. Yes. So so let's stop and think for a minute and remember that capital campaigns are a big deal, right? They're often bigger than any project that any fundraising campaign an organization has taken on. And that's particularly true for small and mid-sized organizations, right? For universities, there's a different different frame, but for small and mid-sized organizations that may never have even thought of raising five or $10 million, that's a big lift. And chances are the boards in organizations like that have never been involved in a project that has raised that much money. So you can understand that there is a fair amount of anxiety that comes along with that, right? That, and that board members, if they're paying attention, know full well that if the campaign does not succeed, if somehow it falls off the deep end, guess who's going to be left holding the bag, right? The board is going to be left holding the bag. So it's no wonder that boards tiptoe their way into campaigns and sometimes get quieter and quieter as talk of the campaign happens. And uh, I think it's incredibly important that if you are moving into an organization and your board is moving into an organization, into a campaign, that you think carefully about the things you can do to make your board more comfortable and understand, first of all, understand what they're in for, and second of all, help them build their sense of commitment and approval of the campaign step by step, not just going from one meeting to the next. Let's, let me start at the beginning and then I'll get Amy to give a suggestion, but I would start with this, that many organizations um, move into a campaign from a pretty robust strategic or long range planning process. And if you are aiming heading for a campaign, which is likely, you will want to do as good a job as you can of involving your board members in that process. You will not want that planning process to be largely a staff-driven process, 
right? You're going to want to take the time, the effort, the energy to actually include board members in those discussions so that by the time you get to recommendations about what the organization is going to do next that is going to require a campaign, the board is already behind that, right? You don't want to just weave them in at the end. Well, here's our plan. We're just going to grow. And, you know, now board members approve this. You really want to think carefully about about creating enough opportunity for board members to be in really robust conversations um, about the future of the organization. And that's a start, right? Sounds like kind of an early start, but believe me, it starts there. What do you recommend, Amy? I think one of the things, since we're on the topic of remembering Simone, that she really drills into her conversations and her her board experience is the difference, important difference between the board as a whole and individual board members. And so as you're thinking about bringing your board on board, you both need to look at it or need to look at it both from the perspective of the board as a group and individual board members. So just like with any fundraising, it's one thing to say to your board, we expect you to participate, but then it's a totally another thing to go to each individual board member, whether it's on the phone or in person or over Zoom and say, you know, what are your thoughts on these plans? What do you see your role as? What concerns you? What needs to happen before you get excited about it? So really taking the time, and it is it is a process. It does take time and effort, but you don't want individual board members, uh, you know, bad-mouthing the campaign behind your back, in the hallways, in the parking lot, or picking up the phone as soon as they get in their car or after the meeting and saying, you know, this is not a good plan. And you haven't even taken the time to sit down with them and say, what are your thoughts? What would make you excited about this? What would get you on board? And really taking the time to listen to each board member individually, in addition to the group as a whole. So I want to pick up on what Amy's just said, because I think we don't we don't think enough about what it feels like to be a board member. And and when you are a board member, you think three or four times or I certainly did about when to raise my hand, when to stand in opposition, when to ask my questions that may feel contrary, when to get in the way of the group process, right? If I have have questions or concerns, uh, I, I'm not always sure that I would voice them unless somebody specifically asked or unless there was a process developed that would encourage people to share their concerns or their thoughts very specifically. So just because people sit quietly at the board, around a board table or around a board Zoom meeting, you can't assume that they're, that they are feeling great about it, right? You have to assume that they're not sure whether it's a good idea to, to voice their concerns or dissents because they don't want to be seen as a naysayer. So when Amy talks about talking to individual board members, it's incredibly important. And the bigger and riskier and scarier the project is, the more important it is to, to do that. You'll learn a huge amount by doing Yeah, I, th- I think right along those lines, we have to remember, you know, mob mentality, Right. So if the loudest person in your boardroom is either pro or con, 
it's hard for people to speak up in opposition or in favor of whatever it is that the loudest person in the in the boardroom is is speaking about. And so just because one person says it first and loudly, it sort of has the effect of discouraging people often from from speaking up. And so being creative in terms of how you call on different people or making sure that everybody has the opportunity to speak or share in some way um, individually and as a group is critical, I think, for getting your board on board uh, for success. All right. So let me just bring up another topic here and then we'll switch over to some of the questions we have. The The other topic is you have to remember that probably a large percent of your board members have never been through a campaign from stem to stern, from beginning to end. And from them, for them, for at least some of them, what they think a campaign is, is creating a fancy brochure and sending it out, right? <laughs> they, that's probably the, what they think. You should earlier, sooner rather than later, find ways to educate them about what, what a capital campaign really is. And there are numerous ways to do that. You can hire a firm, you can hire a capital campaign toolkit to do it or another firm. You can bring can bring people in, executive directors or development directors from other organizations in your community that have completed campaigns in to talk to your board, right? But don't just take for granted that the board members know what they're doing. The chances are much better that they don't. And even if people on your board have been involved in a campaign, it may well have been a university campaign and they may have worked on their alumni class giving for that year, right? It may have been a little piece of a campaign where they were asked to go and solicit five people. But do they understand the whole shape of a campaign? No, probably not. So assume they know less, not more, and then set about finding several ways to help them get up to speed. So at least they understand what's coming down the pike and what's going to be expected of them as board members. Yeah, so before we dive into the questions, I'll add one more thing. You know, Andrea, we were talking this morning about different topics that we want to do on Toolkit Talks and in the blog over the coming weeks and months. And, you know, board members come up a lot and how to identify a consultant for helping with a campaign and, you know, what to look for. It is fascinating as we hear from a variety of organizations you know, how the different approaches that different organizations take. And I think, you know, sort of as expected, the less an organization knows or is experienced with a campaign, uh, the more they stick to what they think they know, which is either sending a brochure or going public or doing an RFP, issuing an RFP. Um, and so people revert to, of course, uh, what they think they know. And uh, that's where we see organizations get into trouble and make mistakes. Um, you know, we were we were we will be doing toolkit talks and some blog posts on how to think about hiring a consultant as you prepare for your campaign, um, because 
we realize and recognize that so many board members and staff members don't have a clue as to how to start that process, what questions to ask, what to be looking for. Um, and, you know, part of looking for a consultant for your campaign, you know, one of the things that we'll be sharing in a few weeks is all of the reasons not to issue an RFP, because what happens frequently is that people write RFPs who don't have experience with campaigns. And so they're looking for the wrong things. And instead, um, you should ask campaign consultants for interviews. And I mean, that's next week's topic. All right, next week's topic. I'm getting next, carried away. You're getting ahead of yourself. All right, we'll talk about it. ahead of ourselves. Let's so, go. So okay. Let me, let me suggest that everyone take a look in the chat at Amy Showers' terrific chat here about what she do, did to educate her board and how successful it was. And I think it's terrific, Amy, to use that fundraising cycle as a way to give people specific things on your All board. Right. Specific but we're, we're going to read it for the people listening on the uh, podcast, yes. Andrea. So yes. Amy says, we recently did board education where we identified the pieces of the fundraising cycle and then gave examples of how they could help with identification, cultivation, solicitation, and acknowledgement, engage, and steward. Uh, after we did this, more than half the members contacted uh, me, uh, this is Amy who's writing, uh, to make a personal thank you calls to donors who had given to the most recent appeal. Once they had very specific things they could help with, they stepped up. And this can be translated into a campaign too. help them understand where you need them. Yeah, I think it's such a good point, but we do we do need to read those for people who are listening later and not yes. seeing this live. Yes. So when Miriam says that most board members have mostly been quiet about your cap her capital campaign, it's the first campaign for them, for her CEO and for her. There are two new board members who joined in the past month. It'll be interesting to see how the dynamics change. So you it is it is to at your peril to assume that quiet is good. Right. Quiet is generally not good. And the way you can encourage people to talk more is to structure the meeting in a way that everyone is asked to speak about a specific topic, about their concerns, about their excitement, about questions they have. Right. So don't let that go unattended to. Right. Find ways to work with your board chair or who's ever running the, that meeting to get people to give people permission and time to speak as though you have to train them to do that. All right, so two things. One is don't confuse uh, what Miriam's suggesting about quiet board members early on in the campaign process with a quiet phase. We're talking about two different things here. We're talking about board members who are not willing to speak up early on in the planning process um, and share their, their thoughts. Um, the other thing is I would be very, very careful to ask for concerns and objectives in a group setting at your board meeting. Um, until you've done so individually, one-on-one, -on -one, because you don't want so, well, I don't know if you're gonna disagree with me here, Andrea, but you wanna be careful about having people uh, raise objections and concerns because that might plant all sorts of objections and concerns in other people's minds that they hadn't even thought of. Um, so I want to try and address some of those one-on-one -on -one in advance and then bring up the ones that I think are more universal or, you know, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, you can also ask people to take an index card, for example, on one side of the index card, write down your biggest concern. On the other hand, write down what's your biggest excitement. 
Yes. And they can pass the cards around and get people to read them. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a that's a way to do it. Yeah. They're actually getting people to write things down on their own and then reading them is a great way to get every to get to know what people are thinking. When you send it around the table, right? Say, okay, now Amy's gonna talk and now Susan's gonna talk and now Sean's gonna talk. Of course, everyone piggybacks off the last one or everyone listens to see what sounds reasonable. So <laughs> I like to get people to write things down. You know, if you're together, get get them, give them all index cards and say, okay, write down three things you're really excited about on the front. And then on the back, write down one thing that really scares you. All right. That's Excellent. All right, let's go to let's go yes, to an easy question, Andrea. Let's start yes. with Scott's question here. Uh, Scott asks, "What percent of a campaign goal should you secure before going public with your campaign?" That's a great question, Scott, and a question that you know a lot of people have that, and and there is not. So here's the simple answer. You're going to hate it. The simple answer is it depends. And it does depend. Let me tell you what it depends on. It depends on the size and shape of your donor base. If you have a really broad donor base and a lot of people who give a lot of small gifts, and you know that through your public phase campaign, that's through social media and various other broad-based things you, you, can, you do, you'll be able to raise a fair amount of money then perhaps you can you can have raised a little bit less before you go you go public the rule of thumb is that it needs to be at least 60% and maybe 70% and for some organizations 80% of of the money raised but the way to think about it is to is to analyze carefully how much money you think you can raise from the broad base of your organization and look at it backwards because you don't want to launch the public phase of your campaign and a year later still be going on because you haven't come close to, to doing that. That's what you don't want to do. So you need to be quite sure before you go public that the amount of money left to raise is money you know you can raise. I mean, that's the real answer. And then if you have a very narrow donor base, right, if you if you have only, I don't know, 500 donors altogether and, you know, then you're going to want to raise a lot more money at the top because you don't have the base of donors to go to at the bottom. If you are a very broad organization, have a lot of people who give you money, maybe you maybe you can get away with 65 or 70 percent or 75 percent of money raised. So that's the way to think about it anyway. How about Amy's question? Uh, Amy's question is, if a board member is not comfortable helping with any piece of the fundraising, how do you help them step off the board gracefully? And, you know, we can point back to Simone's book, How to Fire Lousy Board Members. But let's talk about... um, So let me tell you what Simone says about this, right? This whole book is about how to fire lousy board members, right? and help the others succeed. And one of the things that she says, the story that she has in this book that just, I love stories, right? So she talks about the, the story of the horse bringing a horse, leading a horse to water. And then if you can't make them drink, 
you fire them. But what she does is that she has like 18 steps of what she calls enabling, where you walk beside the horse or the board member and you help them with this and you help them with that and you encourage them to do this and you encourage them to do that and you set up good governance and you set up good reporting systems and you you do all the things that will help them function well. And then if they really are not able to function well, then you suggest to them that there might be a better role for them in another organization or within your organization. Maybe they would do better in direct service, volunteering in the cafeteria. Maybe they would, maybe they want to become, to become, um, to go on an advisory board where they come together once a year or once every other or or twice a year to meet with the executive director. So firing people sometimes means graduating them, right? (laughs) Graduating them to someplace where they can do less damage and where they're not taking up a seat, but it feels to them like they're being graduated up, right? You just know that they're being graduated sort of out, Right. Or at least out well, of the seat. You thank them for their service and yes. you you ask them to serve in another role. And, you know, sometimes and this doesn't work with everybody, but I've sat down with board members and said, listen, this is the direction the organization's heading. Do you are you do you want to get excited about this direction? And if not, this may not be the time for you to serve, you know, the time and the place for you to be on the board, because, you know, while some dissent and uh, challenges are certainly welcome and it's important to hear a variety of opinions. But once we've sort of been through that process of of discussing and hashing out and uh, then we need everybody to be on board once the vote has come and every, you know, enough people have agreed we're moving in this direction. So it's time to either get on board or it's, you know, uh, you know, we want to see this organization grow. So are we are we growing together? Now, going um, back to Simone, I mean, she is very clear that boards should have governance committees as opposed to just a nominating committee. And it will be the governance committee's job to fire a board member, not the not just the executive director. The governance committee and the executive director work together and are responsible for doing that. So if you're a development director, it's not your job to fire a board member. It may be your job to point to say, listen, this board member is not functioning, but it's not your not going to be your job to actually to actually fire them. Um, so Vicky's right. asked a great question here. Uh, how can we include board members who are not able to contribute large amounts of money? We've been working on diversifying our board to reflect the communities in which we serve, low income and minority. They don't have the networks of other board other board members may have. However, we don't want to alienate them and created them us culture. That's a terrific question, um, Vicki. And I, I think it's a question that most every organization should be asking these days because boards should be working to diversify and to be more representative of the communities they serve. So this question is likely to come up more and more as we have become more aware of, of the importance of diversifying our boards. Amy, why don't you start, start it off? Yeah, so I think, you know, it is important to have a diversity of skill sets and viewpoints and perspectives and experiences and diversity of all kinds on your board. And so that means that some people are able to contribute, as you said, Vicki, large amounts of money and 
honestly, the vast majority of board members aren't able to contribute what you might consider, you know, what would be in your top 10 campaign gifts, right? So generally a board will have one or two or three, you know, maybe a handful of people that do and are able to contribute the leadership level gifts, but everybody else is on board financially in terms of a gift that they're able to make, you know, and it might be $10 or $50 or $100. But to me, it's critical that everybody make a significant and meaningful gift to them and be on board sort of with their actions and their words and their advocacy. So everybody's going to have a different role on your board. And so, um, that's where you can recruit a campaign committee that's on the side of your board that is able to contribute more of the a bigger percentage of those larger campaign gifts. Um, and that, uh, that's actually a tried and true strategy, right? It really does work. You don't need a money board to have a capital campaign. Right. What you do in a capital campaign is you create a sort of a, a, an, or a, a campaign steering committee or other committees where you pull in people from the community who are philanthropic leaders just for the purposes of that campaign. And you might mix it up with some other people as well. But it's chances are good that some of the philanthropic leaders in your community wouldn't want to serve on your board, but they may well want to help you take a big jump forward with your capital campaign. So don't assume that the largest philanthropic leaders of your community won't be willing to get on board and help in a short-term sort of way. In the capital campaign toolkit approach, we, we suggest something called the campaign planning committee that actually comes together two or three times to, to, to help develop, talk through, and, and establish the plan for the campaign. And because it's a very short-term um, commitment, you often can get some very wealthy people or philanthropic leaders to serve in that capacity, to have their names will be, will be connected with the campaign, but they won't have to come to meetings every week or every month or every, even every three months. So by all means, create other other structures outside of your board to help move the campaign forward. All right. I want to go back. I don't want to skip over and I'm going to slaughter this name and I apologize in advance, but Mayambala has asked a question about an orphanage that they're starting and thinking about what a campaign looks like and how you even think about starting a campaign. So as Andrea has mentioned, and we've talked about certainly, often campaigns come from a strategic planning process. So sitting down with the people that are closest to your organization, generally your board, your key staff members, and saying, what does the future of this organization look like and how do we get started? You know, there, there are few sort of founding principles or guiding principles that we think of that everybody needs when they're kicking off a campaign. One is campaign objectives. What do you want to raise money for? So in this case, it's very clear, right? Your community needs an orphanage. And so what does that entail? Is it a building? Do you have a structure? Uh, you know, what kind of staffing and resources, what kind of programming needs go along with that kind of thing? So really thinking through your project and program and what are the campaign objectives? What are you raising money for? 
The second thing, of course, is how much will that cost? So figuring out what does that cost in your community to put a program like that together? Um, and then the third thing would be the case for support, which is why people give. Um, and so, of course, there are many more details that go into that, but I think as a starter conversation, you really, the first three things when you're thinking about a campaign are, what do we wanna raise money for? How much will it cost to do that program or project? And why would people care and why would they give? Um, and then of course, moving forward from there. But that's those are the fundamentals. That's a great starting place. Uh, so Miriam uh, Pereira would like to know who should be having these one-on-one -on -one conversations with each board members, each board member about their concerns over a capital campaign, the CEO or the development director or someone else. Who would you point to, Amy? Yeah. So I mean, of course, the the common refrain, the refrain that we keep giving Andrea is, "It depends." So. It depends on the personalities and the styles and the characteristics and qualities of your board members and your executive director or CEO. So to me, if you have a competent and capable and willing board chair, then ideally you want the board chair or the board president, whatever you call them, the head of the board at your organization to have these conversations. Often it's the executive director and the board chair together. Sometimes things get in the way like time, resources, personality. And so, you know, I always say that there's a, a long distance between sort of best practices and in theory, what should happen. And then to the other end of the spectrum, which is reality at so many of our organizations where the board chair is either unwilling or unable to have those conversations or the executive director is unable or unwilling to have those conversations. But um, to me, it's one or two key board members or a key board member alongside the executive director should be sitting down and having those conversations with, with each board member. You know, here's another approach to that. If you have a fairly big board, you could actually put together a small committee, a small ad hoc committee, which would be the, a campaign pre-planning committee or something. And it can be the job of the people on that committee to go and talk to all the other board members and then bring back the results right into some kind of a, some kind of a report. So there are many ways to, ways to, to do that. Um, depending on the size and shape of your board and the people, the people you have, you have. But I, I would, I, I would certainly consider that as one option, along with what Amy has has outlined. Um, all right, what what are we going to do next, Amy? Karen, uh, I didn't read it yet, so hopefully it's a good question. Karen, how can an executive director get fundraising momentum towards a goal with a very small staff, small board, and a board that does not have a development committee? So to me, not having a development committee is no problem at all. Honestly, I think that the whole board, especially a smaller board or a startup board, should be treated as the development committee. Because what happens when you create that development committee is the rest of the board goes, ah, we don't have to fundraise and we don't want the rest of the board to think that way. And so just treat your entire board as the development committee for as long as you need to until it really makes sense uh, to break off a development committee. So I don't have any problem with that. I think that, you know, getting fundraising momentum is hard. 
And uh, fundraising is hard. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it, right? And we wouldn't be having these toolkit talks week after week after week. Um, but there is a strategy and there is a method to the madness. And if you plan well, then fundraising is much easier than if you don't know what you're doing or you run around sort of without a plan or half cocked. And, you know, we talk to organizations on all ends of the spectrum every day, some that are very strategic and thoughtful, um, getting the help that they need, others that just want to run out and start blanketing their community with, with mailings, which is a, not a good strategy for fundraising campaign. Um, and so, uh, but well, okay, let me stop there. Andrea, what, what do you want to add? Well, I just have a story about that. Um, okay. With one of our one of our clients who who uh, came and hired us, they they had to raise a, a pretty for them a pretty good chunk of money to renovate a historic site, the a building that was falling down. And they had actually started the renovations and they needed to raise another $750,000. It was at that, an all volunteer organization, they hired an executive director and they, and there was one volunteer who had already raised like $150,000 by going to his friends. And then he's found that he ran aground and he couldn't raise anymore. So he said to the new executive director, all right, you need to create a brochure and you need to find out all the rich people on Long Island. This was a project on Long Island here in New York. You need to look and see if you can do some prospect research, find all the rich people on Long Island and send them this brochure. Right? So that was going to raise the rest of their $450,000, right? At which point the poor executive director who was about to tear her hair out because they were browbeating her to do this, got in touch with us. And we said, oh, we, we, can, we can assign you one of our wonderful advisors who can help you take on these, these guys who think they know what they're doing with the brochure. And lo and behold, after about three months of wrangling this project into some kind of order. She reported to us last week that they actually totally changed gears. They started, they created a gift range chart. They started from the top down soliciting gifts and they were about to go over their goal. And now the board wants her to keep raising money for other projects. So <laughs> that was a good story. It was that fun. is a good story. All right. So there's a, an, a question from an anonymous attendee that's a paragraph long and we can't talk and think and respond. So I want you to boil your question down to one sentence and then we will get to it. Uh, that well, we can us. we can do. I want to I want to continue uh, the answer to Karen's question about okay. the small organization because because I'm going to say something that may seem totally counterintuitive. But the smaller your staff, the smaller the organization, the less time you have, the bigger the gifts you need to raise. Right? Now think about that for a minute. You don't have time. If you're a person, one person trying to do it all, you don't have time to go to 100 people or even 50 people. You have to say, all right, we have to raise, I don't know how much money you have to raise. We have to raise a million dollars, right? How are we going to raise a million dollars? Well, guess what? For you to raise a million dollars, your top gift probably needs to be Three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars, right? You need to look for the, a really big gift because you don't have the time, or the staff, or the energy, or the ability to raise that money in small gifts. You just don't. So, so don't don't shy away from thinking that you 
that's a double negative, have <laughs> the confidence that you can, that you can approach people for larger gifts. You can, and you will be much more successful than if you say, oh, we're just so small and we can only go to people for $500 gifts or $1,000 gifts. You're never going to do it that way. So have courage, Karen. All right, listen, this is a perfect time for a quick seventh inning stretch. We like to take in the middle. So literally or figuratively, it is time to stretch and for a quick toolkit commercial. And the just so everybody on the Toolkit Talks knows, or if you're listening to us on the podcast all about capital campaigns, the Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders running capital campaigns. And we provide support in a variety of levels in a variety of ways. So if you are even considering hiring a consultant of any type to support you through your capital campaign, or you weren't considering it, but you know that you need help, we want to talk to you and we want you to consider us. If you think these toolkit talks are great, just imagine the kind of service that we provide to our members and our clients. It is outstanding. And so we would love to talk to you about your campaign we're happy to answer your campaign questions if you want to email us or set up a time to talk with us and learn if our support system would be right to help you set up an effective and efficient campaign plan and help you uh, steer you in the right direction. All right, Andrea, we are back to our questions. Yes. Whose question do you want to answer next? So, well, I think Blanca's question is interesting, but I don't know. The, I don't have an answer for it, but we'll put it out there in case somebody else does, uh, you know, if chat in if you do. The question is this. Are there any resources to educate low income workers to be part of the board? We have a grant that requires low income workers to be part of our board. However, it's a challenge to educate them on what a board is, its purpose, its goals and so forth. Uh, and on top of that, what would you recommend as to how to balance dynamics between highly educated board members and low-income board members? So that those are terrific questions and, and important questions. If anybody has suggestions about resources that Blanca might might go to, I would encourage you to to um, to do that. You know, my our friend Andy Robinson is likely to have some good resources for that. He just knows that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm not sure how to, you can go to andyrobinson.com. Is that his, his, his website? Uh, I don't know. Do uh, If you type in Andy Robinson and fundraising or yeah. nonprofits, he right. will pop right up. But I do want to make sure, Blanca, that, you know, you and, you know, make it clear that I don't think we should assume that simply because somebody's low income means that they're either uneducated or that they don't know how to be a board member. And so I just want us to be careful about thinking about, you know, who makes a good board member, why they make a good board member, what kind of education we're providing to all board members. Sometimes people um, have served on many boards, so and sometimes they've never served on a board. So I might look at it that way, you know, experienced board members versus inexperienced board members. Um, but it's also true, Amy, that it's an amazing opportunity to pull people in who are perfectly smart and bright and capable, but have had no board experience and have had little education. 
Yeah. That that is a challenge to figure out how to get those get those groups coming together. I guess the the, the thing that I would think about is to find a way to be very open about what it is you're doing, right? Not to pretend that there's not a difference, right? To get your governance committee to work on that, to involve some of those people on the governance committee, to to invite their participation about how to do it. This is not a problem for the educated people to figure out what to do with the uneducated people. It's a problem of everyone to say, how can we work together to use the various things that we know? And people who somehow may have low education, but may have a direct experience with the direct service of your organization will have lots to offer other board members and your board. So take it on as a project. Don't. All right. There's lots of great suggestions in the chat. So I want to go back to read Blanca's question carefully, and that is low income workers. And some of the suggestions in the chat are senior citizens, definitely low income, students, low income. Uh, Somebody else suggested going to your local unions. Um, You may find, you know, hardworking people in the community who are interested in getting involved. So lots of great suggestions. But I I love the suggestions of both senior citizens and also students um, as low income, but potentially fantastic board members. All right, let's keep going. You know, I just have to say that the this organization that every once in a while I talk about because it's one of my favorites is uh, Community Music Works in Providence, Rhode Island, and it's a music organization that serves serves um, pe- children and families families of color largely, uh, who 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 often don't have many means, and they give them free music lessons and a whole bunch of other of other things, and they do the most remarkable job of building their board in a way that in, that reflects their entire community. They bring in alumni who have gone through the program. They bring in parents. They bring in community members. And and those board meetings, which I sit in on now and again, and committee meetings are are quite magical, actually. They're not awkward. They're they're quite magical because, because the question of diversifying the board for that organization is so embedded in the mission of the organization. So everyone has come to expect it and to be comfortable with it. And it makes it interesting that, you know, someone said to me recently, well, where do you think the diversity initiative should be, should, should reside in an organization? Should it reside in HR, right? In the human resources, right? And which is the way many people address these issues. Okay, we better hire people of color. We better hire people of, you know, from different parts of the society, or should it reside in the mission, in the articulation of the mission of the organization? The more deeply you embed it in your organization, the less difficult it will be to mix up things at every level of your organization. So, okay. Right. Have we gotten to our anonymous attendees question yet, Amy? Yes. Well, uh, so the question that I'm looking at says, um, uh, how important is it to develop? There are several anonymous attendee questions, so I don't know who. The question is, are they all the same anonymous attendee? Yeah. All right. How important is it to develop a compelling story for a capital campaign? And should a consultant be hired to develop, assist in developing one? 
But yes. So yes. stories are important, right? The case for support is important. Those things all matter. And we do not encourage you just to hire someone on the outside to develop that. In, in helping to understand and come up with the stories and how you talk about them, that's a wonderful opportunity to bring people from your board and other committees into discussing them. You may want eventually to hire someone who's a really good writer, right? To put what to put the material that your your committee members and your board and your staff have come up with in good order so that they're written well. But don't don't think you can just hire someone on the outside or that you should just hire someone on the outside. You lose that wonderful opportunity to get people talking about well, what really are the stories about our organization? What really is compelling about what we want to be doing? So start inside. And then when you're ready and you think you know what the stories are and what the ideas are, then you can hire a writer if you don't have someone good to do that on the inside. All right. Somebody else is asking, my president is eager to hire a new fundraising staff member who would serve as both the annual fund director and the comprehensive campaign manager. I've never encountered such a person and found that the two are distinctly different skill sets. Uh, Have you ever encountered such a position? You know, um, I'm curious in the chat if people want to say, you know, what they're responsible for or what their, yes, what their responsibilities cover. You know, in our experience, we work with development directors all the time who are responsible for annual funds and the campaign. Um, We do encourage organizations to consider hiring an additional person when they are launching a campaign, but that person might be providing administrative support. That person might be doing more grant writing or event planning or other roles at the organization. Um, generally, you know, an organization does need to staff up, but it is often the development director who's running the annual fund and the campaign at the same time. You know, sure, it would be great to have two distinct roles and and certainly larger organizations do. Um, but let's let's hear from the chat about what roles you play and and how you've hired. So let me jump down to this question, Amy. Uh, we're considering adding an annual gift option in our potential next million dollar campaign down the road. We have a small donor base, but building a plan to expand that. Uh, the building, uh, the board is wondering if we open up to accept annual gifts as an option for the new donors who aren't confident in the larger capital campaign, will that take away from our capital campaign? So um, I actually have strong feelings about that. And they're based on this concept that, that there are two kinds of fundraising. Uh, one kind of, there are two kinds of gifts. One kind of gift is what I think of as recurring gifts. That's annual fundraising where donors get in the habit of giving you relatively smaller gifts year in, year out. You develop a habit of giving. Your donors develop a habit habit of giving for that. And they make, they make the gift in, um, they calibrate the gift because they know they're going to, they're likely going to give it year after year after year. So someone who could give you $100,000 in a capital campaign may be giving you $500 a year or $100 a year in their annual fundraising because they are recurring gifts. And then when you raise money for a campaign, you go to the same donors and you ask them for special gifts. 
that are once and done, that are over and above what they give in annual fundraising. So if I were you, I would encourage you to get right on going by creating an annual fund, right? Get it going like clockwork, right? You're, you have two asks a year, perhaps, or however you want to structure that, but it becomes a regular thing on your calendar where you're inviting people to help to, to give to your organization regularly. And then when you do a capital campaign, you go back to those very same people. You say, on top of what you're giving now, we hope you will give a special gift to accomplish X, Y, and Z. And I would make that distinction quite clear. I find that donors really appreciate it. For many donors, and I suspect for many of you, this is true, you give differently when you think to give an annual gift than you do when someone asks you for a larger capital gift, right? One might is likely to be a check, what we call a checkbook gift, right? You give out of whatever your current income is. It's fair. They're fairly easy gifts. But when someone comes and asks you to do a three-year pledge to give $10,000 or, you know, something or much more than that, you're not going to do that out of your checkbook. You're going to think differently about that. And I think when you consider your fundraising, you should think about your capital campaign and your annual fund from that perspective. Excellent. All right. We're running towards the end here. Let's let me read Matilda's question and let people in the chat answer it. And then we'll share some final words. But it's a process question, she says, for really small or medium sized fundraising teams. What systems do you recommend to save time and keeping track of prospecting contacts with donors, spreadsheets, CRMs? Um, and what should we spend uh, I I think on them, but uh, so in the chat, go ahead. If you have time-saving tips and uh, systems and CRMs, what do you love? I might read some of them, but let's wrap up maybe with some additional thoughts on Simone or some board, any final words of wisdom for our board. I saw somebody earlier quote Simone uh, with something lovely. Oh, there is... There is no minor gift. Uh, so somebody's sharing. That's a quote of Simone's. I'm going to take your word for it that that is true. There is no minor gift. Every gift is meaningful. And, you know, we tr I truly believe that, that there is no minor gift. The question is, is everybody participating fully uh, to, the, to the ability that they can? And are they, you know, on board emotionally, mentally, physically? Are they excited about your campaign, about your organization? Are they talking about it? So Andrea, final words? Uh, just, I see Susan has suggested something called Donor Snap, which I'm not familiar with. We have a relationship with Bloomerang, uh, which generally gets gets very, very good ratings from, from people. There are a lot of different different kinds of organ, uh, different kinds of CRMs and systems for you to be to be looking at. Don't don't be overwhelmed. You know the the challenge with most of these large organizations like like Razor's Edge is that most people don't learn to use even a tenth of it. So be sure you don't pick a system that's more complicated than you're actually willing to learn and that you have the staff to actually become a master at. The simpler ones are often better for organizations that don't have a dedicated staff to to, to work on to work on those systems. 
All right, so if we didn't get to your question, Patricia, I see we didn't get to your question. Do feel free to email us or pick up the phone. And I want to encourage everybody on the call today to visit the Capital Campaign so, Toolkit site. At Patricia, Capital, yeah. I have an answer for you. Patricia's <laughs> question is this. Many of our board members are family members of individuals who receive services from our agency. How do we fire them? You don't fire them. You create another role for them. That's what you do. Excellent. All right, good. And on that note, uh, if you're looking for a, an advisor or an expert or a consultant, we hope that you will consider us. So visit us at capitalcampaigntoolkit.com. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye, Bye. everybody. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.